If you'll take your copy of Scripture and turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to continue our series in Rooted, and we started last week talking about being rooted in Jesus. And, and that's going to continue as a theme for the entire book of Colossians. That was really what Paul wants to communicate to us. And uh, it's really great today. I get, to, I get to preach and teach on my favorite subject, Jesus. Uh, what you're going to hear today is, is a, a wonderful hymn. Uh, we believe in early hymn in the early church and, and maybe even a doctrinal statement that they would repeat every Sunday. And uh, we're excited to be able to do that. But here's the point today that I want you to see. I want to I ask two questions to kind of frame what we're going to be talking about today. First is this. Is the Christian life really worth living? Is the Christian life really worth living? And is Jesus really worth following? Now, I learned something early on in my seminary career called Pascal's Wager. I don't know, you might not know it by that name, but you might be familiar about that like this. Uh, Blaise Pascal was a mathematician, scholar, or theologian, and he came up with this idea, and here's what he would say. He would go to atheists and he would say, listen, I wanna have a wager with you. And here's the wager, that if I live a Christian life and I find out at the end there is no God, my life still meant something, it's still valuable. But you are taking a huge gamble if you live like there is no God and then you get to the end of your life and find out there is a God. But here's the problem. Pascal's wager doesn't work. Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus Christ is not alive, if he's not been resurrected from the dead, that the Christian life is the most useless and worthless thing you can do. In fact, here's what he says. If Jesus is not who he says he is and didn't do what he said he did, then our faith is worthless. We are liars. We are still in our sins. And of all people on the face of the earth, we should be most pitied because we lived this life for no reason at all. And so today we're going to answer the question, is the Christian life really worth living? Is Jesus really worth following? And so here's another question before we get into our passage today. How do you respond when following God costs you something? How do you respond? And if something happens in your life that costs you for following God, is it worth it? What would make it worth it to suffer? What will make it worth it when following God may cost you something? Those are the questions I want you to be thinking about and thinking through as we work through the passage today. Because I'm going to give you what it is that would be worth it for anything in our life. Are you ready? Let's go to Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and in invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything." It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. 
and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope, that you, hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions." Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So here's the question. Is there anything about the Christian life, is there anything about following Jesus that makes it worth it no matter what comes our way? And there is. Jesus. He is worth it. Everything about who he is and everything about what he's done makes anything that we go through in this life pale in comparison to him. He's worth it. And, and this verses 15 through 21 were, or 20 were, were probably an early hymn that they sang in the church every Sunday morning. Because it talks about Jesus. It talks about who he is. It's a great reminder of who this wonderful, powerful person is that we are supposed to love and worship. And so I need to frame who he is before we move forward to talk about how that works out in our life. But Jesus is worth it. And the reason he's worth it is that he's what your heart is longing for. He's what your heart is longing for. Here's the thing. This is that God has created us with this God-shaped hole. And nothing in our life will ever fill it. We can throw in there everything that the world has to offer. We can drown ourselves in all the pleasures of this world. And that hole will never be filled until Jesus is the center of our life. Why? Well, let's see how he is everything that we're longing for. It says, Jesus, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. One of the beautiful things that we get right here, one of the reasons that Jesus is everything that we're longing for is Jesus gives us a clear picture of who God is. Have you ever felt like in your life that you're just groping and, and, and in the dark trying to figure out who God is and what he does? Does it ever feel like sometimes that God's a mystery and we don't know what he's thinking or what he's doing? Well, here's the thing. It's because we're not looking in the right place. Jesus gives us a clear picture of who God is and what he does. If you ever wonder what God's thinking, go look at and listen to what Jesus says. 
If you're ever wondering what God would do in a certain situation, just go look and see what Jesus would do. And that's what God would do. And so in those moments when we feel far from God and we're looking to try to figure out his plan, all we have to do is go see Jesus and we get a clear picture of who God is. But then we also find out that he holds first place in everything. He holds first place in everything. Listen, I just read some of this, but it says that he's created everything. All things exist because he created them. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. In fact, it says that, we, that he is the firstborn from the dead so that he will have first place in everything. I think one of the reasons that we struggle so much to see that the Christian life is worth it and following Jesus is worth it is that he doesn't have first place. The struggle I think that I feel, and I'm sure you feel too, the struggle is that constantly there's things vying for first place in our life. What's most important? Is it our family? Is it our job? Is it hobbies, leisure time? I mean, there's all these things that are out there trying to grab first place in our life to say we're important, we're necessary. And here's the reality. Our lives will never make sense until Jesus is firmly on the throne saying, I am first place in your life. Nothing makes sense. And so he's everything that we're longing for. And when we put him in the right place and we set him in the right place in our life, all these other things begin to make sense. He's what we're longing for because he's in absolute control of everything in our lives. I love where it says in verse 17 that he holds all things together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't know if you've ever thought this thing through, but if Jesus isn't really Jesus and he really isn't who he said he is, then the universe itself would implode on itself. The only reason the sun rises and the earth spins and the stars stake their course in the sky is because Jesus does it all. Jesus holds it all. He holds all things together. And if you're here today and everything in your life seems out of your control, here's what you need to hear. He is in control, absolute control of everything in your life when everything in your life is absolutely out of your control. He is in control. I don't know if you've ever said this to yourself, but I've said it to myself as I've had so much swirling around in my life and I don't understand how I'm gonna figure it out. I don't understand how I'm gonna work it out. I'm just saying, I don't know what I'm gonna do and I don't know how I'm holding it together. It's in that moment that Jesus speaks really clearly. He said, you're holding nothing together. I am. The reason you haven't broken apart, the reason you haven't fallen apart is because Jesus is holding you together. That's who he is. He's worth it because he's the head of the church. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. There was a beautiful reality that God made very clear to me when I started in ministry, and here it is. Are you ready? I'm not the head of the church. This isn't my church. This isn't your church, 
It's Jesus' church. And when we come here, we need to recognize it's not about the people. We don't come because of the people. We don't come because of the program. We don't come because of the preacher. We don't come because of the worship style. We, become, we come because Jesus is here. This is what church is all about. And thank goodness, isn't it? Thank goodness that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the center of the church. It gives us a reason to come and make it worth it. Because let's be honest, if it was about all that other stuff, we have a lot of reasons not to get up on Sunday morning, right? I don't like some of those people that go down there. I don't like some of those programs that they're doing over there. I especially don't like that preacher dude. I don't know who he thinks he is. But we don't come because of that. And when we come, what, what satisfies the longing of our heart when we come is him. We get to sing to him. We get to pray to him. We get to hear about him. We get to respond to him. Is it worth it? Yeah, because he's here. He's worth it. And he's what our heart is longing for because he gives us life and he is our life. It says that he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That firstborn from the dead talks about resurrection, talks about new life, talks about new power, talks about new purpose. And here's what he's saying. He is the one who gives us our life. We talked about this, so I'm not going to hammer it like I did last week. When we talk about this, we, we, we're always concerned about our purpose, and we're always concerned about meaning in our life. And here's the reality. When Jesus rose from the dead, he walked out of the grave alive. He said, this is your purpose, to live in newness of life. This is the meaning. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you eternal, abundant, everlasting, resurrection, power-filled life, and I want you to live in it. He is our life, and he gives us life. Verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. I don't know if you ever felt this way, but sometimes it's easy to feel distant from God, isn't it? It's easy to feel like, you know, there, there's that moment we remember when we come to faith in Jesus and we're just so excited and we're so full of joy and we're so full of passion and we just kind of the things of life beat us down and we just feel far and we feel distant and we think, God, I don't know what to do and I know how to get back to you. Here's the reality. Jesus is worth it and he's what we're longing for because here's the thing, when we have Jesus, we have the fullness of God living inside of us. We have the fullness and we never have to do anything more to get it. And God's not withholding it. Yet here's what we act like. God, I, you're just withholding more of yourself. And if I could just feel more, I could, if I just do more, I could feel more. And here's the reality. Jesus is all you'll ever need. When you get Jesus, you get God totally, fully, completely. He's worth it. He's worth it. Because in all these qualities, he brings all these things into our life. And then verse 20, he reconciles us. God reconciles us to himself through Christ, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It's one of my favorite pictures in scripture. 
He's worthy. He's worth it. It's great to have him in our life because he reconciles us to God. Christ comes into this ruined and broken world with people who are running away and rebelling against God. And he walks into the world and he opens up his arms and he says, come, come. And he doesn't just stand there and say, come. He he walks into the world and he ends all suffering and oppression by destroying evil at the cross. He he destroys all the barriers that we put between us and God, our sin, our rebellion, our fear, our doubt, and our shame. He wipes them all out in the cross. He tear down every excuse that we have not to love Christ, not to follow Christ in the forgiveness of sins that he gives us and he washes it all away. And then he says, listen, I'm reconciling you to God. Reconcile. Reconciliation is a pretty powerful thing. Reconciliation is taking parties where a relationship has been broken because either one of them or both of them have done something to hurt the other person. And the relationship has suffered a lot of damage and, and both of them are kind of turned away and they're, they're kind of stubborn and they're, you know, resistance. I'm not turning and I'm not turning and I'm not changing and I'm not changing and I'm not forgiving and I'm not forgiving. Reconciliation turns them back toward each other. It mends the brokenness. It heals the pain and it restores a relationship. I want you to hear how powerful this is. Christ reconciles us. He comes. He dies. He pays our debt. And then he changes us from the inside out with his forgiveness and newness of life. And we turn to God and say, I'm sorry. He does it. He reconciles us. But he doesn't just reconcile us. He makes peace. He says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. I don't know about you, but it's a powerful thing when you can make peace with people in your life. There's nothing more joyful. There's nothing more amazing at that moment where you just have that moment where you ask for forgiveness and it's offered or you offer forgiveness and it's taken and you both kind of have that moment of reconciliation and restoration and then there's peace. Too often what we experience is the lack of that. Too often what we experience is that brokenness that never gets changed. I experienced both of those things in my life with my parents. This may come as a surprise to you, but I was a pretty stupid kid. (laughs) And I did stupid things. And as I got older, my stupidity got bigger and I started doing more stupid stuff. Um, I was 18 and I knew everything as most 18-year-olds do, right? Knew everything. My parents were complete idiots. They knew nothing. And so I was living and doing exactly what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it. And then Christ came into my life at 18. And I began to change. And the reality was there was a long period of time where that relationship between me and my parents was broken. God calls me in a ministry. I go to seminary. And God's really saying, hey, you need to handle these things in your life before you move forward. And just as I began to try to make amends with my dad, I wanted to start with him because our relationship was the worst. Started trying to make amends when my daddy got sick. I didn't know how sick. And I kept telling Heather, we had just gotten married, and uh, I kept telling her, you know, 
When we go home the next time, I'm going to talk to him. When we go home the next time, I'm going to talk to him. When we go home the next time. The next time that we went home, he was on a ventilator. And I couldn't talk to him. And the next time I went home after that, I was burying him. And I never had an opportunity to make peace. My mom, as you know, had been sick for a long time with cancer. And, and it really kind of kicked me. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to waste this opportunity. And I began working with my mom, owning up for the things in my life and seeking restoration and reconciliation. And I'll never forget that moment. Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina happened and we went home. My mom was really sick, and I got to spend every Friday with her in the hospital for about a month. Sometimes she was awake, sometimes she wasn't. But one Friday, she was wide awake, she was herself, and we began to talk. And that day, she said, I forgive you. And I asked for forgiveness, and we had that moment, and there was peace. Now, I share that because here's the thing. As powerful as that is in my life, you know what's more powerful than that? The day that my heavenly father said, I forgive you. The day that my heavenly father says, you are forgiven and you are reconciled and I'm gonna restore you and you are my child and I'm gonna use you. That's what peace is. As powerful as it was to be able to do that with my mom and I'm thankful I got a chance to do that. What I am more thankful of is my heavenly father reconciled me to himself and then made peace. He made peace. And I never have to worry about my relationship with him ever again. And if Jesus has made peace for you, you never have to worry about that again either. And then it says, he makes us holy and blameless and above reproach. Is the Christian life worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Yeah. Of all the things that we've talked about, and there's a million things on this list that are amazing and wonderful and make it worth it to follow Jesus. But here's the thing, listen to this. God takes ruined and broken sinners and because of the blood of Jesus Christ, he says you are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach in his sight. And it's not just something that he's saying, it's something that he's doing. It's both true right now and not yet. It is true right now in heaven, God sees those who are in Christ as holy and blameless and above reproach, and yet God is at work in us right now making us holy and blameless and above reproach. Jesus is worth it. Now there's a transition that happens here. Paul starts talking about stuff that we're uncomfortable with. He starts talking about suffering. Suffering and mission, suffering and mission. He, he starts off with this beautiful, powerful, wonderful hymn about Christ and his worthiness and his holiness and his amazing power and, and how he's really worth it. And then he poses this question. Could you face whatever may come in this life knowing these things about Jesus to be true? Are these things about Jesus enough to help you stand against the storms that you're going to face, against the suffering that's going to come, against the hardships and the trials and the calling that God puts on your life? Is it enough? And that's the question you have to answer yourself. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 24. 
I rejoice. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, listen, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. If we were to take a poll here today and I asked you to raise your hand if you rejoice in your sufferings, there would be very few hands go up. Why is that? We, we hear this all throughout the Bible, connection to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the life of faith. It's not if we will suffer, it's when. And so he says, listen, I rejoice and suffering for Christ. And I want to say a couple of statements before we unpack this so that you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Here's what Paul's not saying. Here's what the Holy Spirit's not saying. Here's what I'm not saying. That we shouldn't seek suffering or force it into our life. For some reason, when we talk about suffering, it's like some people just think, okay, well, if that's what God wants, then I'm going to suffer. So I'm going to run out in traffic as soon as I get out of church and get hit by a car. I'm suffering for you, Jesus. No. Or some people think, okay, if that's, if that's what it's about, if that's kind of part of it, if suffering is it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow everything up in my life so I can suffer. I'm going to have the most awful relationships that I, ha I can have. I'm going to blow up my marriage. I'm going to blow up my kids. And so I'm going to constantly have suffering because I have drama. It's not what he's talking about. Here's what he's talking about. This isn't punishment. See, there's this reality where sometimes we look at suffering that comes into our life, and here's the first place that we go, God's punishing me. I hope you can hear this. Suffering in our life isn't always God's punishment. Sometimes it's just a natural consequence of life. When I lost my parents and I went through Katrina, God wasn't punishing me. It's a natural consequence of life. People get sick and they die. We have natural disasters in this world. Things happen in our life. And the question is, is not if, it's when. And I think the scariest thing when we talk about this is that how many of us aren't prepared for suffering. We, we approach life much like we do other things in our life and we assume that nothing bad will ever happen. You say, well, I don't live that way. Well, look at how we spend stuff. I'll never forget, I think I've told you this before, Heather and I were looking at buying a car and little did we know that, you know, the market was going to crash in about four months. In 2008, the housing market was going to crash. And uh, in one weekend, 45% of the families in our church lost their jobs. So we go to the car dealership and we sit down and we find the car that has every bell and whistle, everything we could ever want. And they give us the payment and I choked. And then here's what I did. 
oh, we can afford that if nothing ever happens. As long as nothing ever goes wrong, we can do that. And guess what? We drove that monstrosity home. (laughs) And four months later, something happened. This is the way that we live our life. And this is kind of the hope that we have as Christians because too many people out there have been telling us bad things about what it means to follow Jesus. And here's what we assume. I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I got dunked, and now nothing bad will ever happen in my life. And then when the natural course of events in life happens and suffering comes, we start questioning God and saying, God, what about, what about this nonsense? How could you let this happen? How could you do this to me? Listen, dear one. It's not if suffering is going to come in our life. It's when. And when suffering comes, we need to ask the question, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is it worth it to continue to live the life that he's called us to live and be the people that he's called us to be? It's important to ask the question, could Jesus transform the suffering I'm in now into something else? See, too many of us face suffering in one of two ways. The first way is it's an obstacle and it needs to be removed. Any suffering that comes into my life is an obstacle and I want it gone. I don't want to learn anything. I don't want to grow. I don't want to experience anything. I want it gone. And Jesus says there's another way. There's a better way. That every time suffering comes into our life, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to stop, to look, to listen, and to wait and see what Jesus is going to do. See how Jesus is going to step into our suffering. See, here's the thing that scares us about suffering. We're afraid we're going to do it alone. We're afraid that nobody's going to understand. Here's the beauty of what the New Testament tells us. Is that Jesus Christ came to this earth for an express reason to save us, but also to suffer. In Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus has suffered just like us, except without sin. And I say this at funerals, but I I think it's important today. Jesus walked on the face of this earth and experienced every form of suffering that we experience, so we don't have to experience it alone. The only person who's ever experienced suffering all alone is Jesus, and he did it so we don't have to. And when suffering comes into our life, here's the promise and the truth that we have. That that man that we've talked about, Jesus, who's worth it all, who's amazing and wonderful, he stands right next to you in suffering and says, I know. I know. With tears on his face, I know. I know exactly what you're going through. And I know exactly the way to get you out. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Have you ever wondered why that phrase is there? We wouldn't need that phrase if Christ just removed suffering when it happened. He wouldn't have to say that. The phrase would be, don't worry, when suffering comes, it'll soon be gone. But what does he say? I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Could Jesus transform our suffering. 
He sure did for Paul. Paul said, I'm willing to share in Christ's suffering. And he did. In your notes, I put 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Have you ever had an experience where you're kind of moaning and complaining about the suffering in your life? And then you come across and you start talking to somebody and recognize that, wow, they really have stuff going on. What, is it, what happens when you do that? It almost kind of puts you in your place, doesn't it? It kind of wakes you up a little bit and you start thinking, well, thank you, God, that I'm not going through that. Paul said he rejoiced in his sufferings and he was willing to share in the suffering. And let me just tell you, paraphrase what happened. Here's what he says. Five times I was almost beaten to death. Five times. 39 lashes like Jesus got before he was crucified. Five times I was almost beaten to death. Multiple times I was stoned and left for dead. Multiple times I was beaten and thrown into prison. Multiple times I was shipwrecked and in the ocean and left for dead. And at the end of all that, he says, I thank God. I thank God. I thank God that I can share in that. That may not be your place today. That may not be what you're feeling today. But here's the reality is that you can share in what Christ is doing in suffering by turning your life over as a stage Paul began to understand that the greatest way through suffering is for Christ to use your life as a stage to proclaim his victory. Every time they beat that guy to an inch of his life and he kept preaching was another glory and another testimony to the power of Jesus. Every time they stoned him and dragged him outside the city and left him and then he got back up and he walked in the city like, you know, with all his broken bones and all his blood and he walks back in and he says, Jesus is God. It's another testimony and victory. And I saw it clearly. I saw it clearly how God can transform suffering that way in the life of my mother. She was diagnosed with cancer They gave her six months to live. They said, we're going to do everything we can. And we went to very aggressive treatments. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege to go into a chemo ward. It's not a fun place. It's full of darkness. Sucks the life right out of you. There's no joy, no hope. And the first couple of times we went, I kept telling my mom, I don't don't think I can come back anymore. I I I don't think I can bring you anymore. And, and we just kind of kept going. And then something happened. God just began to work in her life. And she began to surrender her life as a stage. And let me tell you about the victory that Jesus did in and through her. As she began to surrender that suffering to him and saying, okay, this is yours and I'm going to let you have it. And I'm going to let you work in me. She would walk in that cancer Lord and, ward and light would shine. She would walk in and joy would begin to spread across people's faces, not because she was there, but because Jesus was inside of her and he destroyed the enemy in that place. When he showed up, the enemy had to flee. When he came, darkness had to go. And so she would come and she would sit and get the most vile treatment that you can get, the most powerful cancer treatment. And she would talk to the people around her. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Can I pray for you? She would pray for the nurses and the doctors that they came in and did their job there. You can imagine how difficult it is to do that. And I began to see God do an amazing thing through her suffering that he could do nowhere else. 
He began to show people in darkness that there's light. He began to show people without hope that there's hope. He began to show people who are suffering that there's another way of joy and comfort and peace. Because my mom said, here's my life. Make it a stage. Listen, if you're suffering today, if there's something that you just can't get over and you can't deal with and you just don't know what to do, let your life be a stage. God wants to work in you. God wants to use you. God wants to take what's going on in your life and he wants to show his victory. So much so that God's really changed the way that I talk about people dying. I used to say, and it makes me sad that I used to say it, that my mom lost her battle with cancer. <laughs> she didn't lose, she won. Death couldn't touch her. Death had no hold on her. The moment that she took her last breath here, she took her first breath in eternity and she was made whole. She didn't lose, she won. And that was the testimony of victory that everybody who had come in contact with her, that's what they heard and what they saw. And that's what he wants to do in you. So he says, listen, could you face suffering in your life knowing who Jesus is? Could you face it? I think we can when we understand who he is and that he's right there with us and he's holding our hand and he's seeing us through it. And then isn't it funny that Paul links these two things together? He talks about suffering and then he talks about mission. He said, my suffering is directly linked to the mission that God's given me. And the mission that God's given me is to proclaim the word. Look at verse 25, preaching the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been made manifest to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him. Now notice he uses that word we a lot. See, it's easy for us to say, well, that's Paul because Paul's a, an apostle and Paul was a missionary and this is what God's called Paul to do. No. God is saying, listen, to rejoice in your suffering, you have to embrace your mission. And here's your mission. Your mission is embrace the ministry of reconciliation. Remember, Jesus made us reconciled to God. And because he's reconciled us to God, he's now sent us out into the world to preach that message of reconciliation to everyone else. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Now you may, sit, see, you may be saying to yourself, well, wait a second. How do you know that God's chosen me to do this? Because he's saved you. If you're here today and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, the number one priority in your life is embracing the mission that Jesus has given you. And that mission is to take the gospel of reconciliation into all the world. He has reconciled us so that we will go and share reconciliation with other people. And I can't imagine a better thing to go and talk to people about. If you spend much time with me, you know that I am a fountain of useless information. 
Like I have all kinds of useless facts that I can tell you about Star Wars and uh, superheroes and the office. I mean, just tons and tons of useless information. And unfortunately, I spend more time in my life talking about useless stuff than the most important thing. God has called me, God has called you to look people in the eye and say, listen, God loves you and he wants to be reconciled to you. How can you say that? Because he reconciled me. We embrace preaching the word. We embrace proclaiming the only hope that anyone has, Christ in you. Listen, we don't need to go out and proclaim hope in the church. The church is not our hope. We don't need to go out and proclaim hope in the pastor. The pastor is not our hope. We don't go out and proclaim hope in baptism or any of those things. The only hope that anyone has is Christ in them. It's the only hope we have. And then we proclaim the only peace that we have. Verse 28, he says, we proclaim him, admonishing, teaching, calling every man to be complete in him. We proclaim the only peace there is, and that only peace is that we are complete in Christ. So many problems that we face in our life is because we think that we're broken. We think we're incomplete. We think that God didn't finish the job. And so we show up all the time looking for new ways and new things that we can hold on to that make us more complete in Christ. And here's what you need to hear. Here's what we proclaim. You are complete in Christ. You are complete in Christ. There's nothing else you need. You have it all in Christ. You're complete. Do we live that way? Is Jesus really worth following? Is the Christian life really worth living? You got to answer that question for yourself. Here's what I want to leave you with. Because I do believe that Jesus is worth following. And I do believe the Christian life is worth living. I want to ask this of you. Is there anyone here today that's ready to step out in faith and say, Christ, I want you to use me full time? I was in a church service like this, except in my home church, and I was sitting up. We have balconies on the side and the back, and I was sitting up in the balcony on the left-hand side as far as you can get. I mean, I was on the back of the back of the back, in the very back corner. And someone asked this question, will you, will you surrender your life to God's mission? And before I realized what was happening, I was taking that very long walk from the balcony down to the front of the church and I walked up to my pastor and here's what I said, yeah, yes. And he says, what are you saying yes to? And I said, I'm saying yes to following Jesus. He said, no, I, you already did that. And I was like, no, sir, I, I want to follow him. I want to give my life to him. I want to do what he's called me to do. And he said, well, are you surrendering to ministry? I said, I don't know. I'm just here because God said come and I'm coming. 
That afternoon, I get home and I'm eating lunch with my parents. And I get a phone call from a church across town and they said, hey, we heard you surrender to ministry today. Would you like to come by and be our youth pastor? <laughs> and I said, uh, okay. But here's the thing. Are you ready? Is there anyone here ready to say, Jesus, I, I just want to do what you want me to do. I want to go where you want me to go. I want to serve how you want me to serve. I'm going to surrender my life right now, whatever it is. No questions asked, no holds barred, holding nothing back. Here I am. Is there anybody here today that would like to embrace the mission that God has called you to be on by sharing the gospel every day? This isn't about what your title is. This is about what your calling is. Are you willing to embrace your responsibility in the mission to share the gospel every day? Is there anyone in here that's ready to rejoice in your suffering by allowing your suffering to be the stage on which God plays out his victory and his power and his glory in your life so you can stand back and say, God did it. God did it all. Is there anyone in here today ready to receive the greatest gift in the universe and that is reconciliation and peace with God. That's our questions and I hope you will respond. Let's pray. Father, you've been speaking. It's time for us to respond. Give us the grace and the courage to do so. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.